Welcome. This is an audio recording of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. The Council is a nonprofit membership organization dedicated to engaging the public in an exploration of global issues and foreign affairs, and we produce over 80 public events each year. To learn more about us or to become a member, visit dfwworld.org. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Um, 
and I'll, I'll skip over it here. There's some great books written about it. Um, but a couple things that I think are worth highlighting about that is, first of all, when we became independent, it was with the thought that we would become a state, part of the United States immediately. Most of the residents of the state had come from the United States. There were certainly people who were uh, Tejanos, Texians, as they were then called, um, Native Americans, French trappers. Um, but all the Anglos who had come into the state as sort of small farmers expected the US would welcome them with open arms, which didn't really happen. Um, and it didn't happen for another nine years. During that point, we were an independent country for nine years in Republic of Texas. Another part we remember very fondly. But if you think back to what we were at that point, it was a pretty ramshackle place to be. We didn't have very much government. We had a government, we had laws, we had a constitution. Um, but the government didn't have any money, nobody in the state had any money. It used to be the case that if you were in Texas um, and you had to pay for a service, you could use a cow and a calf. That was worth $10. But um, usually someone who you were paying wouldn't want the cow and the calf. They wanted currency, but we didn't have currency in the state or the country of Texas, so they had to take it and let it kind of wander away. It was a pretty fair amount of place to live. And I think out of that came a sense that okay, well, we're not going to turn to the government for support because even if they want to provide these things, they can't really uh, do that for us. You saw things like the Texas Rangers emerge then. They were quasi-governmental. They were a, a security force. Um, they were called into duty occasionally, but then when the state ran out of money or the country ran out of money, they would be you know, effectively retired until the cash came back in and they could be paid again. <laughs> You also had things like uh, the churches. That was the same period of the Second Great Awakening in the United States, and so you had Methodist and Baptist preachers riding the circuit, trying their best to spread religion to the people of the Western frontier, um, who were not necessarily inclined to receive it, but nonetheless took from the church some elements of services that the government couldn't provide. So things like, you know, schools or lessons in civic behavior, like pay your debts and don't get into fights and shoot each other in the saloon. <laughs> So between those two things we see in the state of Texas in the 19th century, an emergence of a kind of parallel, um, I, I call it the book of shadow state, um, people that you can put confidence in when you have a limited government. So the government doesn't have to do as much stuff because you have a pretty robust private sector. And then of course the third big part of it that came online after the Civil War was the actual private sector, the business community. First with cattle. After the Civil War, the Reconstruction, we didn't have much of a functioning economy in the state. Most Texans were small farmers very small farmers, they had a few chickens and some corn. But there was a lot of feral cattle running around the territory. If you could catch the cattle and drive them north, you could sell them on the railroads to go east where they had money and be a rancher. So that was the first Texas industry of note. Um, the cattle boom started coming, uh, sorry, cattle, cotton, and then of course in 1901, uh, oil was discovered in large scale at Spindletop and then it became this first great source of wealth for the state. What's interesting about the state circa 1901 was that by that point, the state had already established a lot of the norms and restrictions that we see today in Texas. 1876, we write the Constitution that we still have. The date, that year, would suggest to you what was happening in the state. It was post-reconstruction, and there was this feeling in Texas of our government was just taken out of our hands by the federal government. We're going to write a document that is going to limit the power of the government forever, so that can't happen ever again. And that's where we get the weak government system, the part-time legislature, which is currently meeting in Austin, but it, it does that pretty rarely. It's 140 days every other year. It makes it hard, the Constitution makes it hard for Texas to raise money, hard to spend money, and it doesn't give the government much to do as a task, apart from write the budget and provide for the schools. And then, married to that, the kind of sense of, we want to limit the state government, you have this skepticism of other governments. 
um, and of other interests and this kind of pro-Nexus mentality. By 1901, when the oil was discovered in Spindletop, we already passed an antitrust law. It was designed to protect the small farmers in the state from northeastern railroads and banks because the farmers couldn't compete with the northeastern industrial interests. So when we found the oil, and what were then the northeastern oil majors started coming in, Standard Oil, Rockefeller's company, we had the means to put them on the back foot and say, the wealth of Texas is gonna stay in Texas, which to some degree it did, not completely, and of course it wasn't distributed equally, but it did stay in Texas and it became uh, revenue that has since gone to fund their universities and the government we do have. So I think that was the root, uh, those are the historical roots in, in quick summary of the Texas model we have today, low taxing, low spending, low services. Um, you can see that all is true in reality. We're third or fourth lowest of all the states for taxation, third or fourth lowest of all the states for spending. And uh, I don't know if it's noticeable to uh, everyone in the room, but we don't do a whole lot as far as actual services. A lot of that is still referred to outside groups, civil society, NGOs, private sector. And in a city like Dallas especially, you think about the New Arts District or the new Tidewater Park. That's a mix of uh, public and private investment, often largely private. So that's the kind of approach we've taken in the state. The next question would be, how's that working for us? And I think looking at the data, a lot of which comes from uh, the Dallas Fed, and I've got some friends from the Dallas Fed who are there and there, so you guys can call them and ask them if I'm correct later on. It's working pretty well. We've seen um, a tremendous period in the past 10 years or so of uh, employment growth. It's been almost every month we've seen more jobs in the state than the month before. Last month was actually an exception. We lost 4,000 jobs, I think. So in a state this size, it's a pretty small effect on overall employment, but still it's unusual for us to lose 4,000 more jobs, so we have to be careful about that. Uh, we've seen population growth. In the past uh, 10 or 11 years, we've added about 4 million people to the state, including my, my new friends here from New York and Boston. Um, we're now at 26 million. And we've seen unemployment stay lower than the national average, although it got higher during the recession. For the past six months, every year, we've had lower unemployment than the national average, which is a really big deal, I think, if you're a, a working family, a working person. We've seen job growth across every industry, every sector. My sector, information, is probably the most struggling sector, but nonetheless, we've seen job growth that's been broad-based economically, and we've seen job growth across income quartiles. Kia from the Dallas Fed has some great data on this. A little more than half, a slightly more than half of the jobs we've created in the past 10 or so years have been in the bottom two quartiles, about 45% in the top two quartiles. So it really is diversified economic growth. Um, I think we should be aware that it's not fully uh, regionally diversified. So for example, in the Rio Grande Valley, which is historically a poor part of the state, it's still double-digit unemployment. But in all the big cities in the state, we have six of the 20 biggest cities in the country. Unemployment's around six, 6.2%. In some kind of boomtown areas, like Midland, Odessa, it's about 4%. Um, we'll have to look and make sure that areas that are struggling can be, um, or I think we should look and make sure they're not struggling too badly or poor in perpetuity, but it's been pretty broad-based in every direction apart from that. And then the flip side of that, which is what critics and people outside of the state usually bring up as soon as you start, start talking about the Texas economy, is all the other stuff, our schools, our health, um, the quality of our environment, um, the quality of our justice in the state. So looking at Texas's problems, um, or challenges, I should say. I think we can say a couple things about the, our challenges in general. First of all, I think we have uh, some significant challenges to look at. All those things I mentioned, schools, health, environmental standards, probably not where we want to be as a state. You think about it like, we're the best state in the country, which we are. 
shouldn't be good enough for the best state in the country. Um, we're beating California on all metrics, but nonetheless, the goal is not to beat California. We already do. The goal is to be good enough for Texas. Secondly, I would say a lot of the problems we have are not new problems. Things like poverty, I think it's a huge issue for the state. We've got 70% of the people in Texas live under the federal poverty line, and the federal poverty line is really, really low. Um, we're not going to try the national average on that. The national average is about 14.5%, but nonetheless, it's too high in the country and in the state of Texas. Um, and then beyond that, I think the third thing I'd say about challenges is, despite what I've said about them, our challenges being significant, um, they're usually not as bad as they're described. They're described in a very, very uh, bad way. And I don't mean to say they're not as bad as they described to encourage complacency or to make us feel like it's not a big deal. We have things to worry about. Um, but I think it's worth specifying that so we know that we've got to narrow in on what the problems are. So let's look at health, for example. We're famously dead last in all the states for health insurance rates. Um, but if you look at our actual health outcomes, so death, disease, days of workness due to illness, we're kind of middle of the pack. And I think rankings, national rankings, have, have shown that. I can show you the link later on if you'd like. So with all that said, um, that's kind of the picture. Economic success has been real, substantial, uh, maintained, and somewhat equitable, I think, across the state. But some serious problems ahead. I wanted to suggest five policy reforms that I would do, or, or ideas that I would suggest for Texas. Um, I think that these are designed to be kind of bipartisan, fiscally conservative. Um, I think that's important to get traction in the state of Texas. I'll give you these five, and you can tell me if you agree or disagree in the Q&A. So, first of all, annual budgets. I already mentioned we, were, uh, we have this part-time legislature. Um, every other year when they meet, they're asked to do the budget. But what's worse than that, and, well, that annual budget is fine, but um, in addition to that, you do the budget, the budget starts in the fall after the session ends. So right now in Austin, they're writing a budget that's going to start in September of 2013 for the 2014-2015 biennium. And it's based on all the question marks about sales tax receipts, for example, which are about 60% of our general revenue spending, about population growth, about school enrollment, about oil and gas receipts. And I think it's quite difficult, even if you have a great comptroller, which I'm not sure we do right now, to make that kind of projection over that kind of time when there's so many question marks in hand. Most states have a annual session at least to come back and check the budget midway through. I think we could do that in the state. It will almost be more efficient, more predictable. Right now we see in Austin, you know, they start the session by with a surplus, which is good. Occasionally it's a shortfall, which is really bad. But at the very least, they spend about a week trying to sort of fix what's already in the middle happening because they, they sell the receipts coming in all year, but they couldn't do any of that because they weren't in Austin. So I think coming back for one week, they can get, you know, extra bonus if they would pay to come back to Austin and do the budget. I think that'd be a good step forward, help us be more uh, rational and sort of plan more effectively as a state. Number two, I think our limited government model is working out pretty well for the state. I think that you're not going to find a lot of people and you're not going to find me saying we should have an income tax. I don't think we need one yet. But I think things like the margins tax, which was restructured in 2005, uh, could be reformed to bring in the revenue it was meant to. What happened back then was they were trying to lower property taxes, which are quite high in Texas, um, and trying to offset the revenue that would, would cost us by changing the business tax and the tobacco tax to bring in the same amount of money for the state to spend. What's happened is it hasn't brought in that much revenue, so we have a recurring multi-billion dollar hole in the budget, 
has become sort of something we're accustomed to, but it could be fixed. It could be, I mean, it was not that long ago, less than 10 years ago, the ledge said, we can have these kind of margin tax, and it'll bring in this much money for our schools and for our roads and for our water and so on. I think that's worth doing right this time around. Number three, um, I say in the book that we should raise the minimum wage. I think that if you look at the data about the state, 6.4% unemployment, 17% poverty rate, what that says at a glance is that you have people working in the state, working full time, who are below the federal poverty line. I don't think that's fair. I also don't think it's really good for the state to have people, especially kids, families living in poverty. We know that wealth is occasionally generational in the United States. It's hard to break out of poverty if you're in it. But we've always asked in the state and in the country for you to be out of poverty so for you to find a job and to contribute to pay taxes and to work. So the idea that you can work full time and still not break through that, uh, I think is a little bit troubling for a number of reasons. Number four, I think you should do a soda tax. It sounds kind of like a big government, but it's not quite the Bloomberg soda ban. It's just saying, we look at our health outcomes. We know that the problems we do have in health, this is why I think it's good to specify. Um, are things that are often correlated with behavior and with poverty. So things like sedentary lifestyles, obesity, type 2 diabetes. If we start taxing soda, it might offset consumption of soda. I like soda myself. I buy soda most days when I'm at the office. It costs 35 cents. I drink it. I use the quarter for buying candy from the machine. If we tax soda, I wouldn't have any more candy from the machine. I still have the soda. I think it's worth doing. It would bring some money to public schools, about $2 billion a year, according to estimates, and it would mitigate the consumption of what is really, really a, a sort of harmful junk food. Number five. Um, this one's kind of mysterious, I'll tell you why in a second. But um, partly it's because Mr. Williams down there told me before I started giving this speech that I could test the audience a little bit. I think gay marriage in Texas. I think we have polls that show support for gay marriage, uh, for marriage equality among Texans. And I think it's a conservative policy. I think we know that kids, um, it's correlated, uh, having your parents marry your kid is correlated with success and stability of your family and of better outcomes for you down the road. We already have kids, thousands of them, living with gay parents in the state. If we can encourage their families to stay together, that's going to be good for the kids, regardless of whether their parents are straight or gay. Um, so I'll tell you now why I said that. I mean, I think it is important. I support this as a, as a freedom issue, as a fairness issue. But I also wanted to say it because I've been hearing kind of the national media circuit and people, you know, the things you hear from Texans, oh, Texans are just so backwards, so knuckle-dragging. I think that's not true. I think that on every issue I've talked about, which I regret I'm talking to, I can say an opinion and even if it's not the majority opinion in the room, we're gonna have a civil discussion about it. So I thought I would add that here, then tomorrow I can go to Twitter, go to New York, go to Radio and say, I went to Dallas and said, gay marriage is right, and nobody threw me out of the room. So, so far so good. <laughs> Thank you for being part of that. <laughs> With that said, with that in mind, um, I welcome your, your questions, your comments, your critiques about uh, what I think about the state and what I think we should do, do next. And I have thoughts so I can call on people to well, I really think, um, sorry, I feel like leaning this mic the whole time like, like this. Um, I, I think it is, and I think the general contours, low tax, oh, sorry, is the model sustainable? So the model being summarized low tax, low services. Um, I think it is sustainable in its broad contours, but I think because of the growth we have as a state, we're going to have to do some tweaks to it. So you think about the growth we've had in the state population growth and the youth of the state. Um, we have 8% of the population in the country, 10% of the kids. That's going to mean we need not just more funding per capita for students in schools, actually getting in schools down the road. Similarly with roads. I think we've all driven in Austin or in Dallas, and we've been on some pretty congested highways. We're going to need to spend more money on roads, not just fixing potholes, but building actual new infrastructure. 
high-speed rail and drainage I'd like to see happen, but in the meantime, just easing congestion and paying for the roads we have, not going to further debt to do it, I think it's gonna be worthwhile. So I think that it's worth bringing in more revenue and spending more money. We'll still be on the low, low end of the spectrum as far as that goes, but I think these are worthwhile investments for us to make at the state in the future of our state. Yes, sir. Austin, it's kind of a gentrifying sort of grassroots neighborhood. I'm close to like a coffee shop and a Wendy's and a Jack in the Box. I'm not close to the Whole Foods. Um, I can walk to get fast food. I can't walk to Whole Foods. I can drive there and get it. And I'm an adult, so I do. But you know, kids might not have the option. And I think we've seen some moves to say things like give free breakfast in schools. We already have more than half the kids in the state get free and reduced lunch in public schools. Maybe they should get free and reduced breakfast to kind of get them off to a good start with breakfast. Um, but I think that, you know, it's a complicated puzzle and certainly better knowledge about nutrition and diet is going to be important. Maybe schools place to do that because we can add to what families say with what we know from uh, data and from science. But I think it's going to be a multi-pronged effort. Yes, ma'am. How does the closer in West Texas tell us about the low services model? And what um, recommendations would you make to see that not happen in the future? I think it's a great question. Um, I think it's going to be a growing question in the future because uh, we're going to end up, the country, not the state, the country's going to end up building more fertilizer plants because of the shale gas revolution. Natural gas is used to make fertilizer. So if we can make it more cheaply here, we're going to have new plants. And that's going to mean extra attention to exactly this issue that was just brought to light by a very tragic situation in the West. I've been looking a lot at the data about that since uh, since the accident happened last week. Um, I guess two weeks ago now. Um, I think what we'll see when the investigation is finished is going to be a multiplicity of failures on the part of the company, which was out of um, compliance with a variety of state and federal regulations, but also on the part of the state and federal regulators. I think the regulations were there, um, but when the company wasn't complying with them and had a pattern of not complying with them for a while, there wasn't the oversight or the enforcement to say, hey, there's something kind of you know, there's something kind of cavalier about how you're handling this business that has a lot of dangerous chemicals and explosives in the, in the building. Um, so I think that shows the need to, to really back up the regulations we have with appropriate oversight and enforcement, although not just in the state, in the country as a whole. On the data, we as a state have a lot of workplace fatalities, but not more than our share of the national economy. And I think in the state and in the country, about 40% of workplace fatalities happen in transit, so on roads and highways. Um, in that sense, the, the West explosion is a little bit anomalous, but I think it does call attention to an important issue at a critical time for it. Yes, sir. What do you believe should be the first steps taken by other states in adopting the models set by Texas? <laughs> I've been asked this one a lot. Um, you know, oh, you guys should sign some oil on the ground and drill that. Um, <laughs> I think the first thing has to be. You know, this sounds a little bit um, too general, but it has to be focused on 
business and employment. I mean, the state has this almost uh, obsessional focus on business, 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 the economy, the economy. You hear people talk about everything in economic terms, even when it's not really an economic issue. So, um, you know, the arts. We support the arts because the arts bring $6 billion a year to the state economy, which is not how they do it in California. You know, because the arts encourage human development and the soul. Um, I think that there should be, I mean, I think we should certainly keep in mind things like our schools, um, the quality of our air and our water, and people say that we don't do that enough, and maybe that's fair, but I think that in every state, the first thing should be, how's your business sector doing? Are you creating enough employment? What is your unemployment rate? Is it distributed equally between men and women in different races and across the state that you're in? And then based on that, you can start looking at what your state's industry mix is, what can you do to maybe encourage growth in certain industries in certain sectors, certain regions? Um, even using some of the things we use that are not free market things, taxes, incentives, subsidies, uh, to support those. Southern part of the state and the rest of the state <coughs> explains a lot of that, which means that averages aren't really useful to support the third world country uh, environment and, and follow that on with, therefore you get to the minimum wage issue. Mm -hmm. States that I have high minimum wages have higher unemployment rates, I understand it, of young people who can't get the job, mm -hmm. get into their jobs and then develop I think it's, I mean, I think you're right that there's a regional distribution of poverty that correlates with ethnicity um, as it does in most states, or I think in every state. Um, I think that I, I wouldn't look at that as a specifically regional issue because I think that there's enough poverty even in affluent areas of the state that's worth considering as a statewide issue. So I think in Dallas County, it's about 30% of people, or about kids, sorry in the schools in Dallas ISD who live in poverty. That's still a big issue for Dallas, even if the figure is higher in the valley. Um, I, I think that I would look at the kind of regional split as more of a, what's the regional economy like? So the valley lost a lot of jobs in this last month, where the state lost jobs, partly because the valley is still heavily dependent on manufacturing. And because of, nothing the state did, but because of the weakness in global markets and in exports around the country, if that, that happens, then exports are gonna fall off, manufacturing jobs are gonna see layoffs. Um, as for the second part, I was talking to Pia briefly before this, and she said that she would pay for a minimum wage and employment effects, so I wanted to kind of avoid that. Um, my feeling has been that because we have a growing population, um, I think that minimum wage job growth is pretty closely tied to population growth. And since we know that the state we have continuous decades and decades of population growth, I think we can count on a fairly robust um, minimum wage job environment, even if we see some layoffs at the margin. The issue too about people finding jobs, I, I think what I've seen from data has not Texas data, but nationally has been that if you have minimum wage uh, hikes, you see less turnover in those jobs. So people who don't have one already have a harder time finding one, but people who have them tend to stay longer. So I think it may be a little bit um, hard to predict the exact effects if we get down to that level of detail. But Pia will look forward to the paper and still know more. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Why does it never come up to tax alcohol? Because 
I think there's a much larger majority of people that enjoy a glass of wine, I do, or a beer. So how much would it hurt? Because I bet you, I don't know statistics, unfortunately, but maybe you do. You have domestic violence issues, you have drunk driving issues, you have poverty issues around alcohol. You have so many health, um, it affects their work. So many things, why, and then always, I've heard people when I've asked this question before say, well, it's a huge lobby. Well, so was the tobacco industry for years and years and years. And if we're trying to raise money to deal with some of these issues, what's 25 cents on a six pack of beer or on a $20 or $10 bottle of wine or Something like that. No, it's, it's an interesting question. I think it's tobacco. And you know, this is an interesting data point. We don't have enough health effects in Texas. We're, I think, 14th lowest for smoking rates, which I was kind of surprised by. Um, and we're also quite like, we're at 28 for cancer rates in the country. I, I didn't realize that. So I think that there is an effect that the tobacco taxes have driven down the smoking rate, which has driven down the cancer rate. But I think the difference is that, um, from a health point of view, there's no responsible tobacco use, right? I mean, anything, any cigarette you smoke, any cigar you smoke, anytime you're in a room with cigarette smoke, you're having an adverse health impact. Whereas you can have a few beers or a glass of wine, like I think many of us just did, and you're not gonna then go wreak havoc on their community. So I think that's kind of the difference. And same thing with soda too. So I mean, you're talking about, you know, the 12 cent tax on a can of soda, penny per ounce is, is a proposal. Um, yeah, that, that's enough that it, it might have, a, it'll affect some consumption, but it's not gonna be dispositive. You can't get soda anymore. We're really trying to get you to stop drinking soda altogether. So I think with that, uh, with alcohol, um, it could be a similar thing. Actually, I think that uh, drinking, I don't know if you have critical levels of drinking in terms of domestic violence or explosives, but we do have a lot of uh, drunk driving. And I think we've seen an increase in drunk driving in the cities because of the growth and because there hasn't been a corresponding growth in transit. Um, so that could be an area where we start looking at policy responses either to mitigate too much drinking or to encourage more transit so you're not driving after you drink. Yes, sir. I've been asked this question again most events, and sometimes it's phrased in a much more paranoid way than that, so I appreciate this question. Um, but why is Californians come here to start voting in California ideas? Well, I guess, like, you know, I was, I was born in Illinois. Um, I think one thing that's been great about the state is that from San Houston on, you don't have to be born in Texas to be a real Texan. And I think people tend to come here and they love the state. They come here for a reason. They don't come here for the nice beaches or for the beautiful mountains, right, or for the weather. They come here because they want to be part of this. And I think that encourages them to take on a Texan cast. If we did, I mean, how many people in the room were born in Texas? You know? But, and here we all are talking about Texas and how, how much we love the state. So I'm hopeful that that effect will, will persist. And you know, maybe they'll bring some extra ideas from new states or extra regional flavor. That's fine, too. Yes, sir? Uh, it mentions it kind of in passing, but it's I mean, not not in much depth because I think that the kind of subsequent efforts to do short reform for the short reform in the state um, have will be a bit of a non-starter, at least in the current framework. I mean, we did two rounds in the past decade. I think that helped create an impression of business friendliness, or was part of the overall message of business friendliness. But I think beyond that, subsequent movement on it is going to be uh, less of a factor in state policy. I'm curious if you've been traveling around the country, what the uh, general state or viewpoint of other states are about our government. <laughs> well, you know, they, uh, 
I think that some people um, find him funny, and I think the others have a bad impression of him. So, <laughs> um, you know, he's, I, I don't think he's um, commands a lot of respect around the country. As, as a morning Joe, before they had me talk, they had the clip of this bad fairy of a reading. Um, I actually kind of like your fairy. I think he's a journalist. He's really going to get to me. I mean, he's, he's always going to say what he says in the funniest way. I think in some ways, maybe he's been a moderating influence on the state. He, He'll, he'll look at kind of very sort of far right rhetoric, but I think he's been pretty business focused. I mean, he has a fair alley, he doesn't really do that much to push that in public. Um, I think we're going to have governors conceivably who are more far right. Um, as is now, the, the Tea Party and kind of Republicans who are the farthest right don't, don't quite see him as an enemy, so they're not targeting him, but he hasn't really pursued their agenda, I don't think. So um, he doesn't get us, he doesn't help our, our image. Around the country, but I think he's not all bad. Dr. Here, the questions about term limits. Um, I was going to say it's an interesting thing because one thing we hear about the state a lot is it's a weak governor system, and I think that that's not the case. Um, first of all, because you know, if you're the head of the state, you're the head of the state. Part of the power you have is the power of the pulpit, even if you are a structurally weak governor. Second, if you're Perry, you've been governing so long, you've done so much, you've appointed everyone in the state who has been appointed by the governor, and he's probably running out of people he needs to appoint out of these things. So I think that's what is kind of behind the current push for term limits. Um, I'm not sure it'll get through. It'll be pretty politicized. It might just end up being an issue that falls off the docket because there's not enough push beyond that. But um, what we've seen right now is a bit of a traffic jam, not just Perry, but you know, viewers, the lieutenant governor has been there for quite a long time. Um, if that becomes a pattern that persists over more than one decade's worth of political leadership, then it'll probably be an issue that, that we revisit. Uh, we have something, oh, sorry, okay. I'm, I'm curious, like, you mentioned that um, one of the issues that we wanted to ask is women's health. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are about uh, increasing the additional funding we have for the health care of the mentally ill. Uh, I think it's actually, it's something that we are going to use funding for in this budget, which is currently being cashed out, but that's been a priority we've been talking about since the beginning of session. I think the current budget, as it stands, includes about $200 million for mental health funding in Texas. Um, so I think that's going to be good. I think it also is a reflection of, you know, we get a lot of national flack, a lot of it's not deserved, it's not fully deserved. But we do see this effect where after we get a period of intense national focus, we tend to fix those things. So meeting up the Bush campaign for president in 1999-2000. The next session, 2001, we fund indigent defense, we fund flexible air quality permitting, uh, we carries on the hate crimes law, and that was the year we did the uh, Texas Dream Act, the in-state tuition for unauthorized students, um, all three moderate reforms. And this session, I think, because the budget outlook's improved and because we've had so much flack for you know, being dead last in mental health funding, we're going to get more this time around. So, um, again, here, here. You didn't say anything about that. I've been trying to pause on, on saying what's going to happen with education funding because there's currently lawsuits pending before the state Supreme Court, and I think we're not going to have a decision until the summer. Um, so, I think once we get that decision handed down about how much more we need to spend in schools and how the funding should be distributed then we'll have a discussion about uh, what we do from the courts, the rule of the parameters of the court ruling. Um, for that, I think we've seen this session some movement for more charter schools in the state. I think vouchers are gonna be shut down. We're not gonna have additional voucher funding. 
I think there's a lot of push to restore the funding cuts that were made last session to public ed in general. I think that's good. Um, but I think as far as how that, the new funding is structured, it'll be hard to predict before we have the court ruling about it. And Talk to us about battleground justice. There have been articles recently in the Wall Street Journal and even in The Economist That's true. suggesting that uh, Texas may join New York and California, and if it does, there'll never again be a Republican president. <laughs> it's, it's true. I think that um, this, this strike that this blue thing has been going on for a while, and of course now it has this big infusion of national attention and national cash, um, which is great because for a long time they've just been waiting and waiting and waiting for the state to turn blue magically because it becomes, you know, less Anglo, I think that's a pretty shallow way to look at it. I think that um, certainly you know, the youth of the state, the increasing urbanization of the state, those are demographic factors that favor Democrats around the country. But there are a lot of barriers that remain. The first one just being the candidates. I mean, we're looking at 2014, we're starting to see all the Republicans queuing up to run for the offices. We have seven statewide executive offices. The Democrats side, we have nobody lined up. There is nobody lined up. Um, there's a few rumors about who might run statewide, but there's not going to be any competitive primaries, and they'll be lucky to have a full slate of candidates. Um, that's got to be the first issue. Beyond that, there's the kind of structural difficulties. It's a big state. It's got six huge cities, 20 media markets. It costs a lot of money to run statewide. I think those are real challenges for them, and they're going to have to build some organizations and grassroots to, to get there. But the first thing has to be candidates. And I think for 2014, they're not going to have that. Maybe 2018. We'll see. Eventually, they have their own flock of cattle and be a rancher. 
And when companies started coming in, they wanted to pay their wages. And that was the cowboy strike thing. No, we wanted to pay in cattle so we can be out for ourselves. We can be the boss someday. It's an interesting part of the history. There's a little more about it in the book. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.